Hi, I'm Vishen Lakiani, founder of Mind Valley, the school for human transformation. You're listening to the Mind Valley podcast, where we'll be bringing you the greatest teachers and thought leaders on the planet to discuss the world's most powerful ideas in personal growth for mind, body, spirit, and work. Hi, everyone. Welcome to the Mind Valley podcast. So, if you're watching this on YouTube, you're getting a behind the scenes view of me with Daniel Pink. And if you're listening to this, on a regular podcast app, let me tell you what you're going to experience in this episode. So Daniel Pink is the author of six provocative best-selling books about business, work, and behavior. Four of his books are New York Times bestsellers. His most recent book is When, The Scientific Secrets of Perfect Timing. That book was released a year ago. And get this, tomorrow, the paperback edition is going to be released. Go check it out. It's called When. And if you check it out on Amazon today, you will see that it has already hit the Amazon charts as one of the most sold books of 2018. Now, Daniel's other books are To Sell is Human, The Surprising Truth About Moving Others, Drive, The Surprising Truth About What Motivates Us, The Adventures of Johnny Bunko, The Last Career Guide You'll Ever Need, and several more. He has sold 3 million copies. He was the host and co-executive producer of Crowd Control on the NGO channel, which was a TV series about human behavior. He has been on PBS, ABC, CNN, a contributing editor at Fast Company and Wired. And for the last six years, the London-based Thinkers 50 named him alongside men like Michael Porter and Clayton Christensen as one of the top 15 business thinkers in the world. And of course, if that isn't enough, his TED Talk has been watched a freaking 20 million times. So Daniel, it is awesome to have you on the Mind Valley podcast. It's great to be here. Thanks for having me. There's so much we can talk about. And your work spans so many different books. But what is the big idea on the research and motivation? Well, if you look at 50 years of research, as you say, on human motivation, what it tells us is motivation, particularly in the job, is much more complicated and complex than we tend to think that it is. Our instincts are that if you want to get more behavior, you reward it. If you want to get less behavior, you punish it. And that's true to some extent, but it's not universally true. And the big idea, the one single idea to take home, especially for organizations, is this. There's a certain kind of reward we use in organizations. Psychologists call it a controlling contingent motivator. I don't like that. I like to call it an if-then reward, as in if you do this, then you get that. If you do this, then you get that. 50 years of science tells us that if-then rewards are very effective for simple tasks with short time horizons. They work really well. Why? Human beings love rewards. They get us to focus. They get us to focus narrowly. So if-then rewards are great if people know what they need to do and they can see the finish line. But the same body of research tells us that if-then rewards are far less effective for more complex tasks with longer time horizons. And the reason for that is exactly the same. If-then rewards, and we love rewards so much, they get us to focus very narrowly. That's good if the task is algorithmic. It's not good if the task is more heuristic, if it requires judgment, discernment, creativity, conceptual thinking, then you want to have a wider focus. And so what we have in organizations are you know, bosses that use if-then rewards for everything rather than for the one area, simple tasks with short time horizons where we know that they work. They try to apply them to complex tasks with longer time horizons and they fail routinely. And so what we need to do, especially as work around the world, to some extent, as your company demonstrates, work is becoming much less algorithmic because the work is actually creating 
the algorithms, much more about creativity and judgment and discernment. And so what we need is a motivational regimen that is fit for that kind of work. And the evidence gives us some clues about how to do that. So in short, as work becomes more complex, as the aptitudes that we have to use from creativity to uh, cognitive ability goes higher, if then rewards becomes too simplistic a mechanism to truly motivate people. They don't work that well because it's the wrong tool. Now, we can make all kinds of humanistic arguments about how controlling motivators are dehumanizing, and that's a fair conversation to have. What I'm saying is that if you look at the evidence, if-then motivators are not effective for complex, creative work because they narrow people's focus when you want to widen people's focus. So then how do you widen people's focus? How do you get people to widen their focus but to also be really, really, really excited about their work? Now, the reason I ask is because if you look at the Gallup studies, 85% of people say that they are disengaged or they dislike their jobs. Absolutely right. That is such a good point. And the reason for that is that it goes really to the core of this research on motivation. The problem with if-then rewards isn't the rewards. We sometimes get faked out by that. The problem with if-then rewards is the if-thenness, because that contingency is a form of control. That's one person trying to control another person. And human beings have only two reactions to control. We comply or we defy. And what the Gallup research is talking about, as you mentioned, is engagement. And here's the thing. Human beings don't engage when they're controlled. Human beings don't engage by being managed. Human beings engage by getting there under their own steam. The technology for engagement is not control. It's not management. The technology is self-direction. And that's why if we think about how do we motivate people to do this more complex, creative work, one of the core components is autonomy, giving people some sovereignty over what they do, how they do it, when they do it, and who they do it with. Now, it's more complicated than that, but a cornerstone is that sense of autonomy. And you've identified exactly the reason why we have such deep levels of disengagement. We're using the wrong technology. Human beings don't engage by being controlled. Wow. Okay. Let's say you are a manager or you are a supervisor. How do you make sure that people are going down the right path, that they aren't being unfocused or distracted by the wrong opportunities? That's why we have to have a wider focus and talk about what do we know about the broader recipe about what we know is leads to enduring motivation for these more complex and creative types of capacities. Here's what we know. Number one, you got to pay people well. You got to pay people well. The research doesn't say that human beings aren't motivated by money. Uh-uh. Human beings are motivated by money. Money is actually really important. It's just more nuanced than we think. And so what you really want to do for complex creative work is actually pay people well enough to take the issue of money off the table so they're focused on the work and not on the money. I'm an American, right? It's a very American notion that if we raise the salience of money, we're going to get better performance. That is true for simple short-term tasks. So for instance, if you want a lot of envelope stuff, pay people per envelope. You will get more envelope stuff that way. But for creative kinds of enterprises, it doesn't work that way. And so what you want to do is pay people well, take the issue of money off the table. We can talk more about money later, but as a threshold, pay people well. Then offer them a sense of autonomy, as I mentioned. Offer them a sense of mastery, which is the ability to get better at something that matters, to make progress and meaningful work. And then finally, a sense of purpose. So people know how what they're doing makes a contribution, how it makes a difference in the world. And now to your question then, 
If that is our overall recipe, what good managers should do is they should lay out the broad goals, the broad vision, allow people to self-direct and get there under their own steam, and then offer support, coaching, and feedback as needed for that. But that sense of purpose is the North Star. If you have autonomy without purpose, you have the kind of chaos that you're talking about. So all of these pieces go together. So autonomy, purpose, and mastery. Okay, so you've spoken about autonomy. You've spoken that people want to be self-directed. Let's talk about purpose. How do we create a purpose that really fuels someone, that really ensures that people are waking up every day, excited about their work and giving their best? Well, purpose is complicated. And purpose is not one thing. It's two different things. And there are two different ways to think about purpose. And there's a lot of research behind this. One way of thinking about purpose is what I like to call capital P purpose. And that is, hey, our company is finding new ways to make more nutritious food and therefore is feeding the hungry. That's capital P purpose. All right. And that's the kind of thing you often see in company mission statements and whatnot. And that's important. And there's a lot of evidence showing that that's a very powerful motivator. There's another kind of purpose, though, too, which is what I like to call small P purpose, lowercase P purpose. And that is when you are simply making a contribution. You are helping a teammate get a project out the door. You are helping a customer deal with his or her issue. What people need on the job is the ability to access either one of those kinds of purpose. And what bosses need to do is they need to help people see how their individual efforts fit into either that transcendent purpose or even that day-to-day -day purpose of simply making a contribution. At some level, that second kind of purpose is existential. People want to know that if they didn't show up to work that day, somebody would notice and somebody would care and something wouldn't get done. Right. That's such a beautiful way of saying it. So we spoke about autonomy. We spoke about purpose. I love that concept of the capital P and the lower P. I've read that reference in so many books, and that's testament to how pervasive your work is and how many people are citing you these days. Now, I want to go back to autonomy for a moment. What are some ways you recommend that we can really create autonomy? There are all kinds of ways, and it doesn't have to be anything big. So let me give you a couple of examples. So it could be something as small as in certain kinds of offices. It doesn't work as well in retail, but in software and other kinds of things. Let people come into the office when they want and let them leave when they want. Don't prize FaceTime. Don't prize button seat time. Just let people have some sovereignty over when they work. Very simple thing to do on that. Another thing, companies that carve out a small amount of time in a week, a month, a year for people to work on whatever they want. There are a lot of really good examples of this. One of my favorites is from Atlassian, an Australian software company that does something called Ship It Days, where once a quarter they say to their engineers, go work on whatever you want, do it the way you want, do whatever you want. The only thing we ask is that you show what you've created to the rest of the company on Friday afternoon. And so this island of autonomy has led to a whole array of fixes for existing software, ideas for new projects, et cetera, et cetera. And there's some interesting research basis for this idea. There's some good research on artists. And if you think about fine artists, fine artists can have commissioned work and non-commissioned work. Commissioned work is I say to you, hey, can you make me a painting? I'll pay you $3,000 give you some specs for that. Non-commissioned work is you just paint whatever you want and then try to sell it on the open market. And there's some research from Teresa Mobile showing that when you look at artists' commissioned work and their non-commissioned work, the technical quality of the works is identical, but the non-commissioned works, as rated by outside experts, are almost always more creative. 
almost always more breakthrough because they're doing it under conditions of greater autonomy. So one way to think about the workplace is almost everything we do on the job is commissioned work. You have an assignment, your boss tells you what to do, it has strong boundaries around it. And what smart companies are doing is creating this space, not a lot, once a week, an hour a week, two hours a month, a day a quarter, for what you can think of as non-commissioned work. And that is leading to some spectacular breakthroughs. And this is becoming a big deal across many, many kinds of organizations, nonprofits, for-profit companies, universities. So it's the idea that on the job, we have work we have to do. There's no question about that. But we should be able to carve out these islands of autonomy where people can do whatever they want. And also on a hard-headed side, when you look at a place like Atlassian or any of these places that even have these kind of one-day hackathons, the companies are not signing away the intellectual property rights to what's created on that time. I mean, it's a very hard-headed move. You know, when it comes to the practical applications of this, I think the best example I found is OKRs, that concept used in Intel and Google. There's this incredible book by John Dower called Measure What Matters. And I just put out a list of my top five favorite books of 2018, and Measure What Matters was on that list. And we brought in OKRs into Valley, And OKRs basically stands for Objective and Key Results. So I'm speaking now to the listeners of this podcast, people who might want to take this further. You know, a couple of things that they do with OKRs that John Dower said are rules that he strongly recommends is that when teams are setting their objectives and their key results, the key results is how you measure an objective, 50% can come from the top. But 50% has to come from the team itself. They come up with their own objectives, in short, their own goals and how they're going to measure their success on those goals. And at the end of the entire process, each individual team member rates themselves on how well they contributed to their goal. That's like a beautiful example of autonomy. Since bringing that into Valley, we've had incredible results with teams across the board. That's exactly right. And I would see you and raise you on that because I don't think OKR is some kind of magic bullet. But I think it's in this general area of new approaches to leadership. Everybody complains about micromanagement. OKR is in some level macromanagement. It's basically saying, let's figure out your objectives together. Let's figure out your key results together. Now, go do it. I'm not going to tell you how to do it. I'm not going to tell you exactly when to do it or who to do it with. I'm here to help coach you. But you can self-direct and do that the way that you want. What's more is that these OKRs also have an element of mastery in them because the key to mastery is feedback. The only way you know whether you're making progress on the job is if you're getting information on how you're doing. And so by the very nature of OKRs, you know your objectives, you know the main results that you want to achieve, you can measure yourself against that and it's giving you inherent feedback rather than waiting for an annual performance review once a year. And that's the third point, right? That's the third key point in your book, Drive. It's autonomy, mastery, purpose. And what you're talking about now is mastery. And what you're saying is the way to get to mastery is to be able to have measurements of how we're doing, to know our results. It's not only measurements, it's just information on how you're doing. And this is rooted in, again, some research, just coincidentally by the same researcher I mentioned before named Teresa Mobulay at Harvard Business School. And what she found in analyzing essentially the day-to-day motivation levels of several hundred workers across North America is that the single biggest day-to-day motivator on the job was making progress and meaningful work. When people were making progress, they were motivated. When people were making progress, they were loyal to the company. The thing is that progress depends on 
feedback. It depends on information. You have to know how you're doing. Think of it like driving. I live in Washington, D.C. in the U.S. So let's say I wanted to drive to Baltimore, which is north of here. I got in my car and I didn't know what was north, south, east or west. All right. I didn't have an odometer in my car, so I didn't know how fast I was going. There weren't roadsides or anything like that. I would be lost. And that's how a lot of people feel on the job. They do their work. They actually care about it, but they're not sure whether they're making progress because the feedback mechanisms inside of firms are archaic. They're slow. They're often formal. They're stilted. They are, in some ways, the antithesis of everything that social science tells us about this kind of feedback that people need on the job. That's so true. And I've come across so many books that talk about that. Measure What Matters by John Dower is certainly one of the books. So a key principle of OKRs is that you got to measure. You have to know how you're doing. And another book that talks about that is The Four Disciplines of Execution. It's a brilliant book on how to be really, really, really productive at work, right? So it talks about four disciplines. And interestingly enough, one of those disciplines relates to autonomy. That book actually suggests that you block out time on your calendar where you are not allowed to do anything that's part of your regular job designation. It's your innovation time. And that book suggests that you give that to teams all around the world. So that's one of the disciplines. Now, another discipline is called the scoreboard. You know, I went to school in Michigan and there's this big stadium where we would go to watch our football games. And there's this giant scoreboard that would tell you how the game is progressing. It sounds like you're describing the big house. Yes, it is. It is. So the book talks about that, right? And the book says that what makes the game interesting is that you can regularly see the score, but companies forget that. So the book suggests that across a company, you have pin boards, you have whiteboards, you have monitors that are continuously showing the score, showing trend lines as you hit your goals, as you hit that target. It's called scoreboarding. And I just find it so fascinating how we start to see the threads between all of these books and your work. Sure, sure. And what's important, and this is, the, you know, in Dor's book is, is basically measuring what matters. So it's possible to have all kinds of measurements, but if they're the wrong measurements, then you're racing down a misguided path. But yeah, basically what we're talking about here is we know it's very simple. Progress is the single most important motivator day to day. The only way you know whether you're making progress is if you're getting information. And whether that information comes in qualitative feedback from your boss whether it comes from feedback from a customer, whether it comes from some kind of scoreboard, I'm agnostic to the actual way that it's delivered. So when I read your book, I created a simple mnemonic to remember the three principles, right? Autonomy, mastery, purpose, amp, amp. Like when you turn up the amp, the amplitude of your sound system, you get a louder volume. So roughly when you turn up the amp of your team or your people or yourself, you get more results. So it's autonomy, mastery, purpose. So remember AMP, autonomy, we've spoken about that, mastery. And when we say measurement, measurement is simply one of the many ways to get to mastery because you're getting feedback. It's a feedback loop that helps you grow. But let's stay on mastery for a moment. What are other ways we can create better levels of mastery? Part of it is, is that ensuring that people are challenged on the job. And this becomes a tricky thing inside of especially large organizations. We tend to look at promotions, for instance, as rewards. And there's nothing inherently wrong with that if it's mostly non-contingent. But what I think what happens more often is that people get into a role that they already know how to do. And they've mastered a particular skill, a particular kind of task. And what I've seen in organizations is they often get stuck there for a long time. And when you already know how to do something, you can coast for a little bit, but then actually you get a little bit worse at it. 
and so what you want to do is you want to give people the right level of challenge throughout their careers. That's one way to help retain talented people. It's one way to get people to perform at a higher level. And I think it's a really hard thing to do. We don't do a great job of that in organizations. There's some interesting research showing that the most important things in job satisfaction are control and challenge, control and challenge. So if you think about control on one side of the two by two and challenge on the other side, you have four choices. Okay, so you can have a job where you don't have control and you're not challenged. That's the worst of all. Right. But plenty of people have jobs where they have control, but they're not challenged. They're bored. Plenty of people have jobs where they're challenged, but they don't have control. That's stressful. That's burnout. All right. You have a big challenge, but you don't have any control over what you do or how you do it. The key where you want to be as a manager is you want to have people in that box where people have control over what they do and are challenged. And it's not a static system. So people will, as they progress through their careers, things are going to become less challenging. And so what you need to do is make them more challenging. It's possible, though, if you make it too challenging, they're going to lose control. And so it's this finely calibrated idea here, but you want to keep people in that square of where they have control and they're challenged. Because the alternative is chaos if you don't have control and you're not challenged. The alternative is you have control without challenge, which is boring, or you have challenge without control, which is the recipe for burnout. Challenge without control. See, I like that. I like that. So that reminds me of the book Herding Tigers. It's a recent book by Todd Henry. The subtitle is Be the Leader That Creative People Need, right? And that book spoke about how creative people actually want safety. They want some form of control. They want to know what is that box that they have to color within. But then they also need a challenge. And if you don't give them a challenge, they basically get bored at their work. And I think Stephen Kotler cites a study because I asked Stephen Kotler in another podcast episode, what is the ideal ratio of challenge that puts people in flow? And he mentioned 4%. He said, basically, you want to give people a task that is about 4% higher than what they are capable of. Have you heard anything of the sort? And do you buy that? I'm not sure there's a, like a universal number. I don't even know how you calibrate what 4% more challenging is. But there is a lot of research on the concept of flow. It's the idea from a guy named Mihai Csikszentmihalyi, a famous social psychologist, spent a lot of his career at University of Chicago. And he describes flow as those moments in our lives when the challenge that we face is so exquisitely matched to our capabilities. It's just a little bit more than we can do that we lose a sense of time, we lose a sense of self. To me, what he's talking about is flow. I'm not sure we can quantify it at that granular level of 4%, but it's a little bit more than what we can do. So we're circling around the same kind of topic because Chick sent me high early in his career, wrote a book called Between Boredom and Anxiety. And that's what I'm talking about essentially with this research on control and challenge. What you want is that if things are too easy, you're bored. If things are too hard, you're anxious. So what you want is that sweet spot where things are just right, where it's like these Goldilocks tasks, you know, really well matched to your current capabilities. And that's when people have the greatest satisfaction. That's when people perform at their highest level. And this is also when their level of mastery starts increasing because you have to gain mastery to hit that challenge. So one of the most interesting ideas I read on this topic, and I love connecting the dots between different books. I guess one of the most interesting ideas I read on this topic is by Patty McCord. She was the person who wrote The Culture Deck of Netflix with Reed Hastings. So Patty released a book last year called Powerful. And there's an incredible quote in this book, which I love. I'm paraphrasing here. She essentially said that empowerment is bullshit. 
She says you don't need your people to be empowered. Your people are powerful the moment they walk in through the door, assuming you're hiring the right people. What they want is a way to channel that power. So she suggests in her book that you give people really bold visions, really bold goals, and create an atmosphere where they get a chance to pursue things which are risky, which are ballsy, but they know that failure isn't going to be punishment. If they do not attain their goal, in other words, it's not going to affect their salary or their bonus. They're given permission to fail. But what they're not given permission to do is to play small. I'll be your hallelujah chorus for that one. Amen. You know, and I've written in um, the very first book that I wrote, which came out 20 years ago, a book called Free Agent Nation. I talked about how totally agreeing with Patty that empowerment is BS. It's a misguided notion of how organizations function today. You know, in the old days, the organizations had the power and they could benevolently share it with their employees. But now when so much of an organization's capability is basically in the brains and hearts of the people who work there, the workers empower the organization simply by showing up to work. And so I'm with Patty 100 percent on the idea that empowerment is total BS. Okay, so if empowerment is total BS, based on everything, all the various examples we've been giving right now, what are some of the best ways you suggest that organizations can help their people move towards mastery in the most fluid, efficient way possible. Here's a way to look at it, all right? I can give you a top-level view, and then there are all kinds of mechanistic ways to make that work. Think about our lives outside of the workplace. You know, you want to send a text to somebody, it gets there instantly. You want to have a conversation between Washington, D.C. and KL, as we're doing here, it happens instantly. If you and I, in the course of this conversation, wanted to know what's the gross domestic product last year of Estonia, we can find it in 15 seconds. Think about playing video games. You play a game, you get a score. And so we live in this world of quick, meaningful, personalized feedback. And the trouble is, is that when people walk through the doors of a large organization, that world disappears. They enter a world where there aren't these robust feedback mechanisms. They enter a world where people get feedback by having an awkward conversation once a year with their boss in a performance review. And so what you want is you want the world inside of work to be as rich and robust and personalized in feedback as people's world is outside of work. Okay. Now, how do you do that? I'm not a fan of all of these things, but there are various kinds of software that you can give people, you know, kudos on, right? That you can give your employee, you can give your coworkers kudos on, all right? Say, hey, that was really helpful and give them points in that way. Okay, that's okay. I don't love those things, but that's one way of doing it. Another way to do it is for the boss to have weekly one-on-ones with people and just give them feedback right there, all right? Something as simple as that. Another thing to do is to do something like what happens in agile software. We have teams of people come together, set their own goals, give each other feedback on how they're doing, set new goals, that kind of thing. So it's not so much a specific program or policy. It's really a way of thinking about, you know, the culture and the very bloodstream of an organization. You want the world inside the company to be rich in feedback, just like the world is outside the company. That's amazing. I really appreciate that advice. That took me a long time to learn. It was really, really, really hard to do. It was only in the past one year or so in my company that we started using new technologies from Google, Google Data Studio, for example, that allowed 
pretty much every team in the company to have a little scoreboard that allowed them to see how well they were doing. But I'm embarrassed to say that it took me maybe year nine or year 10 as an entrepreneur to realize the importance of data and feedback. Absolutely. And again, I want to keep coming back to this idea that it's not only numerical and quantitative, it's cultural in a way. It's you're my boss. You and I go to a meeting. I make a presentation. You take me aside for two minutes after the presentation and tell me two ways I could have done it better. That's feedback. Or you tell me one thing that I did really well and two ways I could have made it better. Right. So it's not always quantitative. It's not always numerical. It's just simply information. And it's making it a part of the culture because some people, they get hurt by it. They feel lessened when they're given feedback that might be critical. Exactly. And that's a tougher one, though, because that might be a hiring problem rather than a feedback problem. Very true. Very true. Now, this reminds me of a study I saw by Google that said that Google found that its best employees, its best leaders were not necessarily the people with the MBAs or the big management degrees or the people with the highest STEM certification, but it was the characteristic. And I think they identified seven characteristics that made a good leader. And the number one was the ability to coach. That's actually another really good point is that we tend to you know, promote our top performers to management when writing software and managing software coders are two very different things. Okay, so we've spoken about autonomy and you've suggested some practical ways we could create autonomy. And then we've spoken about mastery, everything from coaching to feedback, to dialogue, to openness, to data, to being able to measure how someone is doing, to giving people a goal that's challenging so they have to work their way up and develop new skills to get to that goal. And we touched very briefly on purpose. You spoke about the capital P and the small P. But let's go on to that third point of AMP, of AMP, purpose. I'd love for you to elaborate more on what your research has found behind purpose. Well, there's all kinds of research on this. And it's basically purpose is essentially the single most cost-effective performance enhancer we have in organizations. And there's a whole pile of research on this. Let's take fundraisers who are making outbound calls to raise money for a nonprofit or a university. If you have those fundraisers read letters from people who benefited from the money that was raised, or even meet people face-to-face who benefited from the money that was raised, those fundraisers perform better. There's some research showing that they can perform 2x better, raise twice as much money. I mean, it's crazy. There's a fabulous study out of Harvard Business School that I love that's a study of cooks cooking in a cafeteria in Boston. And what this research showed is that if you rig up an iPad on the line for the cafeteria and they allowed the cooks to see the customers, the quality of the food improved. Basically, this is small p purpose. It takes your job making a cheese omelet, making a patty melt, and takes it away from this abstract notion. And you see the people who are actually going to eat it, you raise your game. And so it's really kind of exciting because You know, if you want lifeguards to re-up for another season, there's research showing that you have them read stories about lifeguards who save people's lives. Oh, that's why I became a lifeguard. Oh, I'm totally signing up next year. And so we don't use it enough, even though the evidence is pretty clear. It is an extraordinarily effective 
and a preposterously cost-effective performance enhancer. So one of the things that we implemented in our team is someone called a tribe storyteller. We have like 3 million students and we have this one person who travels around the world to all our conferences, films videos with the students on their stories. And very often these are not even like shared publicly, they are just shared internally with the team. Because I noticed this long ago, like my programmers would be in their office working on the backend code for the delivery of this training through the app. But when we could actually get them to see how the customers were interfacing with the app, to see the customer's faces, it would create like a spark of motivation in them. Absolutely. Absolutely. And this is the kind of thing that is really at the fingertips of every organization. And one of the things that I've discovered just studying organizations, working with organizations, I've become a much firmer believer in very lightweight interventions, things that are really easy to do, small wins. A lot of times we want to have these big elaborate change management programs and they're cumbersome and they rarely work. And what I like, it's like, let's give people some small, lightweight tools that they can implement right away, that they can use immediately. And if they work, keep using them. If they don't work, try something else. Because again, I think that in some level we've been seduced a little bit in this idea of big, hairy, audacious goals, that the only way to change organizations is to have moonshots and BHAGs and all that. And I'm not deeply philosophically opposed to that, but I do think that if you look at how organizations actually change, in most cases, they change through small wins. They change from few people in the organization trying new stuff, small experiments that cascade into bigger changes. Amazing. Thank you so much, Daniel. So I want to give a shout out to some of your books for people who are listening and might want to go further. So a lot of the ideas we've been talking about come from Daniel's book, Drive, The Surprising Truth About What Motivates Us. It draws on 50 years of behavioral science to overturn the conventional wisdom about human motivation. Drive spent 159 weeks on the New York Times bestseller list. Congratulations on that. That's ridiculous. And it's been translated into 36 languages. Okay, now, what I want to do just before we end this call is I want you to tell us about your upcoming book, When. When was published January 9th last year, and the subtitle is The Scientific Secrets of Perfect Timing. What is this book about? Yeah, so this is a book about all the when decisions we make in our life. When should we do one kind of work? When should we do another kind of work? When in the day should we exercise? When should we take a break? But even broader aspects of timing, like how do beginnings affect our behavior? How do midpoints affect our behavior? How do endings affect our behavior? And so this looks at this pretty rich body of science across many, many disciplines, not only social science, but into molecular biology, chronobiology, endocrinology, you know, over two dozen disciplines that give us this kind of comprehensive science of timing that allows us to make our when decisions in a more intelligent, systematic, evidence-based way. So that sounds absolutely insightful. I have to read that book. Could you give us a random fact or idea from that book just to tease us a bit? I'll give you a couple of things. Number one is don't go to the hospital in the afternoon if you can avoid it. If you look at the research, hospitals are very dangerous places in the afternoon. Anesthesia errors, four times more likely at 3 p.m. than at 9 a.m. Endoscopists find half as many polyps in afternoon exams as they do in morning exams. Hand washing in hospitals deteriorates significantly during the afternoon. And so this is part of a broader body of research that shows that our cognitive abilities, our brain power, does not stay the same throughout the day. Our brain power changes throughout the day. It changes in material ways. It changes in fairly predictable ways. And so if you know this science, you can figure out 
the evidence-based ways to do the right work at the right time. That is so cool. So let me ask you this. So we're recording a podcast over here, right? And Mind Valley is all about education, podcasts, learning apps. What is the best time for someone to be listening to a highly intellectual podcast like this? The closest analogy that I can think of would be in education and even in therapy. It's somewhat complicated because we have different what are called chronotypes. About 15% of us are strong morning people. About 20% of us are strong evening people, owls. About two-thirds of us are in the middle. And so people who are not owls are generally better at listening to this kind of thing in the morning. So what you see is you see therapy sessions are more effective in the morning. People actually retain the information better. There's some interesting research and education showing, especially kids perform better on math if they have it in the morning rather than if they have it in the afternoon. There's some interesting research out of Denmark showing that kids who take standardized tests in the afternoon score as if they've missed two weeks of school compared to kids who take standardized tests in the morning. So if you're looking at that kind of pure intellectual, get my mind around complicated ideas, it's probably better to listen to it in the morning. On the other hand, for most of us later in the day, in late afternoon and early evening, we're actually a little bit more creative. So if people are looking at this as a form of inspiration, then later in the day, might be a better time to do it. What you don't want to do is listen to this in the early to mid-afternoon because that is the trough period when our physical energy and mental acuity is at its lowest. And you will miss all of the great insights that you and I have been dropping on people. Amazing, amazing. I love that. Daniel, thank you so much for this conversation. Guys, that was Daniel Pink on the Mind Valley podcast. Check out his books. He is an amazing mind and I enjoyed this thoroughly. Thanks for having me. Take care, Daniel. And thank you guys for listening. Next steps, go to Amazon.com, check out Daniel Pink's books, especially Drive and Win. I'm Vishen Lakiani, and this is the Mind Valley Podcast. If you like the Mind Valley podcast, take the next step. Become a Mind Valley member. Imagine being coached daily by the greatest teachers on the planet. How quickly would you transform your health, your mindset, your body, your relationships? How quickly would you double the size of your company? How quickly would you see your career grow? How quickly would you eliminate any limiting belief that's holding you back and manifest a life that you once thought beyond your dreams? When you become a member, you don't just get access to the greatest education in the world. You become part of a community of 150,000 of the most incredible people dedicated to personal growth. Go to mindvalley.com forward slash now to get started.